Turkey hunting is one of my favorite things. And one of the key tools I use for turkey hunting is the Onyx Hunt Map. I use it incessantly when I'm hunting turkeys. Being able to find a new piece of public or gaining permission on private opens up opportunities for gobblers. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you this spring. Use the code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com hunt. You'll find more birds this season. I'm telling you, I rely on Onyx Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. And here's the deal. We're in and out of the water all the time, getting into go spearfishing, getting out, taking the kids to the beach. I'm not going to mess around all day putting sunscreen on then having to get washed off. I just run a hoodie. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com slash PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, coming at you, not shirtless, but extremely bundled up. Is it fair to say that, um, are we in South Central? Are we like too far north to be out of South Central Alaska? I feel like we're closer to interior. Yeah, I'd say this is interior. I can say, I can say we're in interior Alaska and I'm not being like uh, melodramatic. That counts. On a lake, perched over a spear hole. There's about three feet of ice on the lake. We have a hole chopped through the ice. It's about three and a half feet by two and a half feet, would you say? Yeah, that's about right. Looking at a bottom, uh, we're on about eight feet of, in about eight feet of water. The hole we have in the ice is about the size of a big screen TV. Not like a guy that's like way into TV watching, but a, a big screen TV for a person who watches a fair bit of TV, but not too much. What's sort of become the norm, I think, for the American household, right? 40 inches. Yeah, but now and then you walk into a house and you'd be like, these mugs watch a lot of TV. Oh, right. They're based usually, on usually how sports big, fanatics. Yeah, based on how big that TV is, this guy's watching too much of it. <laughs> <laughs> this would be like, we got a hole about the size of... Uh, 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 yeah, you appreciate TV, you respect it for its value, but you haven't overvalued it. And we're on a slope, looking down, eight feet of water. It's kind of a sandy slope. The slope peters off and some weeds are picking up. And we are spearing for whitefish. 
There's two species hanging around. Uh, we have seen the, when you guys uh, the first one you saw when you dropped that little underwater camera. You that feel was like, a humpback. That was a humpback. Yeah. We've seen so far two humpback whitefish, and have seen quite a number of round whitefish. They're about. They look a lot like a mountain whitefish if you're familiar with those, and they're about like a smallish mountain whitefish, but not so small that you'd throw it back. But they're a better eating whitefish than a mountain whitefish. And the humpbacks would be like a big lake whitefish. Is that fair, Brant? Yeah. So far, we have put two of these whitefish on the ice. And we've also picked up lake trout and a big burbot, 14-pound burbot. You weighed them out? 14. A 14-pound burbot. And that's the take so far today, right? Yeah, two whitefish, so. a big smoking burbot, and then a uh, and a laker. Probably the best burbot of the trip. Oh yeah, definitely the best burbot of the trip. Um, so in that's the middle the scene. of the day. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it's not even. Yeah, and so yeah, it's the middle of the day. It's what one o'clock now, two o'clock. Yeah, it's still seven hours till prime time. Seven hours till prime time. Now, um, I want everyone to introduce themselves. And uh, tell your name and how many years you've been ice fishing, Joe. Uh, it's Joe Zich. I've been. How do you spell that? Z y c h. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I hadn't caught your last name, <laughs> Joe Zich. Yeah. Most people call him Joe Zerch from work. I don't know <laughs> where that came. Because they just from. can't live with the Zich. They yeah. got to be like it's got to be Zerch. <laughs> yeah. Joe Zich. What? Uh, where'd your grandparents or great grandparents hail from? Poland. Oh, I got you. I could see that. And I've been ice fishing for 28 years, probably. How old are you? 29. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Bryce? Uh, my name is Bryce Myers, and uh, I've only been ice fishing for about seven or eight years, ever since I met Joe. Uh, he was the one that took me out for the first time. Took you under his wing. Pretty much. So I'll get to why Joe's ice fished for 28 years, but why... Uh, what what prevented you from ice fishing the rest of your life? I'm originally from Boise, Idaho, and not a whole lot of ice down there to, to fish off of. So you're like a little south of ice fishing. Yeah, definitely. I think they do some ice fishing up north, but I wouldn't drive that far to go ice fishing when I was living down there. So it's not like when you go into a tackle shop in Boise, there's not a, um, you don't you don't see ice fishing gear. Uh, not that I remember. I don't think so. At least not around the Boise area when I was down there. But, but you I, were an angler. Yes. You grew up fishing. Y- yes. Did you grow up hunting? Um, not as much. Uh, mostly small game, um, birds, stuff like that. Not a lot. Not a lot of big game. And then you became a you can you became a hard water angler after come moving to Alaska. Yeah, uh, pretty much. Joe said, you want to go fish one day? I said, sure. Bought a cheap little rod. And after that day, I went out, bought myself an auger at an ice house and was hooked. And now here you are with a big pair of uh, ice fishing bibs on. <laughs> working a tube jig down the hole trying to lure in whitefish. Yeah. Okay, Yanni? Uh, Giannis Patelis. And I've been ice fishing for... I could probably still just until I, instead of saying in years, I can just probably give you the amount of days that I've I, that I've ice fished. <laughs> but and, I don't understand why did you not ice fish the, in Michigan? 
You guys are the only people I know that <laughs> hunted and didn't fish. Dude, I don't know. You'd have to ask my dad that question. And I'm, not, I'm, not, like, I'm not going to blame my dad, but I'm going to say that they're like, it has to do with something with the fact that like my dad w- just wasn't a, a big fisherman, never has been, isn't now. It like almost skipped a generation. But we've talked about this before, right? Yeah. Like anyone who traps hunts and fishes. Mm-hmm. Anyone who hunts fishes. Anyone who fishes, who knows what else they do, right? Yeah. But like it's weird to meet someone who grew up in a hunting family who didn't fish especially in the state of Michigan. But the Lavians probably eat a ton of fish. Yeah, they do. No, I knew a lot. I mean, we would go out. There was a Kalamazoo um, Latvian hunting and fishing club. I think my dad belonged to it. And so, yeah, we'd go out and like visit there. They'd have a annual ice fishing derby tournament. We'd go out and check them, you know, meet them, but we never did the fishing. Okay. We'd go out there to say hi. So yeah, less than 10 days on the ice. Less than 10 days as a hard water angler. Mm-hmm. Is that God. total or is that saying 10 day- days ago was your first time out? Total. Oh. Yeah, I messed around a little bit last year in Montana. What are your general impressions? Oh, I dig it. It's been, it's been harder than I thought it was going to be. Harder physically? Mostly because I have, I'm bringing kids along. And so oh. I went out there one day to Canyon Ferry. It's blowing 30. And my, by the time I had the holes drilled, my kids were like, all right. <laughs> <laughs> That's an unbelievably windy place, yeah. man. Yeah. I've re- since then, I've had people tell me, like, yeah, if you're going to go out there, you have to have a shack. Unless you catch the right day, you know. Yeah. I've seen it nice out there, but generally it's, like, windy enough where you're losing five-gallon buckets. Right. Like, you leave a five-gallon bucket unattended, and all of a sudden it's just gone. Yeah. Like, <laughs> No, the ice is scraped almost clean of yeah, snow. You don't get snow the, on the top. Wind, yeah. you know? People come out there. It's so windy that people come out in ice sail where they make like a little boat that has like basically on skates. Mm-hmm. You ever see this? Ah, uh, yeah. That's a windy ass ice fishing lake right there. Uh, Brant? Brant Mikesell. Uh, ice fishing my whole life. From the get-go. From the get-go, yep. Um. And then I've been ice. Yeah, I've been. I'm 44 years old. I've been. I like to say I've been ice fishing for 44 years. My mom and dad, I'll point out, for their honeymoon, rented a live-in ice shanty. That is an awesome honeymoon. That was their honeymoon. <laughs> they ice fished for their honeymoon. So, um, I was even even the egg and even the egg <laughs> and the mixins the mixins that went into producing me had a deep familiarity with hard water angling before they even came together and combined to make my component parts. Deep tradition in ice angling. Now, uh, you guys are from, I would say, probably what I think to be like the ice fishing estate. Minnesota. Yeah. I would tend to agree. I was flying in recently. I flew, uh, I was flying into La Crosse, Wisconsin. And on the flight over, over Minnesota, we passed over some big lakes, and it was right at dark, right at dusk, and you could see the lake just lit up with lanterns. There's little ice shanty villages all over. Ice communities. Do you think it's mostly like in a place like Minnesota where people really hit ice fishing heavy? Is it like, uh, is it because people are miserable and bored in the winter, or do you think it's something else? Like, do you meet people who only ice fish? Yes, actually. That they're not generalist anglers. I mean, I, 
I don't think it's be very common for someone who ice fishes a lot to not open water fish, but I there certainly are people that like are dedicated ice fishermen that don't do much open water fishing. Yeah, and it's like uh it's more associated with drinking. It's frequently associated with <laughs> drinking, but it's also you know, there's some different styles of people. There's people that love ice fishing that don't really care if they catch anything or if the fishing's good. They more care about the drinking. Because they want to just go drink on the ice. Yeah, because it's fun. Yeah. But then there's people that, like, want to catch fish and try hard, but they often are drinking too. Not always. The reason I bring it up is I feel like there's always been a, there's a, like, in the non-ice fishing world, which is a big world, <laughs> okay, of people that don't ice fish, there's a perception of, like, like ice fishing has a a perception problem grumpy old man yeah people aren't yeah it could be that you think that did it that's what i thought of before i even ice fished it's a horrible representation of what it actually is like lazy anglers who aren't successful i mean if you go to those coming in okay we got a round white fish coming in bad angle right now i think you're just gonna have to you want me to wing it you gonna let him walk i don't know if he's gonna turn into the bait i got a stroke at him here, take it. Can well, you get it before? All right, he might come back. Yeah. Doggone it. Come on. Come on, Bryce, back. can you see him still? Jiggle him, jiggle him, jiggle him. Mm. No, I just watched his tail Shoot. go away. He was going back behind us? Yeah. Yep, he was kind of like, he wasn't like booking. I wouldn't be surprised if he comes back through. Seems like he was looking at the jig, but they just like to circle it. Sometimes. Oh, man. I was just thinking we were due. It's been a little bit. Hold on a minute. No. Almost excitement. Would you you would have taken that poke, Steve? Well, I'm at it. I'm in a different spot than you. I would have taken the poke knowing what I now know. <laughs> Me too. But no, I think if I was in your shoes, I would have waited thinking he might hook or just, whatever. But now, yeah, reviewing it in my mind, I would have taken a Hail Mary. Just one more pass like duck hunting. Yeah, yep. let him get closer. Exactly. Oh, so you, so anyways, Bryce. The first thing you thought of was that movie, Grumpy Old Man. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I had in mind for not only Minnesotans but ice <laughs> fishermen. <laughs> and so, uh, so it's been when, so long. Real quick though, refresh my memory. How do they depict the actual angling and the, and the like? What, just what's just a couple of old men sitting around drinking beer. And like not catching shit, but I feel like yeah. most of the movie doesn't actually. No, it's about one of them's like kind of a s- little bit potsy, and then uh, there's like a lady, and they both like her. She goes to the one you figure she's gonna go for. The other one gets a little pissed. Start pranking each other, putting fish in each other's trucks. That's right. That's right. Start to sound a lot like growing up. <laughs> um. So when you got invited out ice fishing, why didn't you? Uh, why didn't you? You were like, "Oh, so this is what I'm getting into. I'm going out, and it's going to be two old men caught in a love triangle." <laughs> no, <I'm in>. uh, <laughs> not exactly. I mean, I guess I just hadn't really considered going out ice fishing. Yeah. I never had the stuff. I wasn't going to just wing it and spend you know three hundred bucks on an auger or try to chip through the ice with a spud bar or something but 
What, yeah. what, when you guys first went out, what was your, what were you going for? Oh, it was just the the stockfish around Anchorage. Uh, the first lake we went to was Beer Can Lake, and just went out and just see what we can catch. And it wound up being like not exciting. No, it was very exciting. Oh, is that right? Yeah, we uh, we didn't have any of the vexlars or any of the f- fish finders. Uh, yeah, a vexlar is like a it's a it's a it's a sonar esque apparatus that kind of tells you what's going down but down below your hole. But yeah, so we didn't have any of those and fishing in the blind, and even then, still just we caught countless fish, and uh, they're most all dollies, weren't they? I think so. Yeah, dollies are the stock rainbows. And then you were hooked. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right after that, like I said, just went out and started buying ice fishing stuff, and now I've got my own arsenal. Because that's what I think. I feel like, like I was saying, like in the non ice fishing world there's this idea that it's uh like super boring and i think but they're because they're looking at people that there's like these different kind of anglers you have your drunkards there's three kinds of ice fishing. <laughs> you had your drunkards you had your hardcore fishermen that were out to catch fish and then you had your drunkards who were hardcore fishermen and out to catch fish and I like associated with, I knew about many of the, the drunkards. I would see a lot of the people who were out there, but, uh, no real interest in catching fish. But it's like the social aspect of it, you know, and like to go drink on the ice. But then my, in my father's social circle, there happened to be a lot of the drunkards who were hardcore about catching fish. And they would be like, there's like the kind of guy who comes out on the ice, he sets up his shanty without doing any work. He just kind of randomly is out there, drills a hole through the ice, lowers his thing down, and that is that is where he's going to be. That's the weekend. And it's like he's just opening it up to fate. It'll turn out. It won't turn out. Then there's the kind of guy who goes out and drills a dozen holes before he does anything. And you're thinking this man will be the man that catches fish because they're taken to it that same level of devotion and passion that what you'd think like the best open water angler would take to it. Yeah, and a dozen holes is an understatement. Oh, yeah. I mean, for yeah, how many holes do you think we drilled on this lake so far? Over 100 easy. You think so? Yeah. It takes a lot longer ice fishing when you're trying to find depth changes because basically if you want to see the depth you got to drill a hole at every spot yeah you know my brother used to talk about the way you like the way an ice fisherman perceives the body of water is so much different the way an open water angler perceives it because he says that he perceives the body of water just basically as like cylinders like when you're out on a lake in the open water you kind of think of the whole lake but he's like i just think of it as that i basically drill my hole and I imagine that cylinder extends down to the bottom. And I just think about like that spot. And then I move over and I make like another like theoretical cylinder that I can think about. But you can't be that you're just checking out the whole place because you're just like picking, you know, you can't troll, you can't cast. You're not like working a drop off. You just have to be where you're like committing to like a specific spot. And picking your spot 
is really important, but you have a lot less data to go off of to pick your spot because you're not passing over with a fish finder getting like a really good sense of where everything is. But Brant, your thing is like drill millions of holes. Yep, ice troll. Ice troll. <laughs> Oftentimes send a camera down there to have a look. Just check out specific habitat up front, trying to find edges, microhabitat, find the spot on the spot. And then on top of that, you you need to go in there and take a poke. And here we have like the visual element where we have a big ass spirit hole and we're in shallow water. So you see all the things that go on that you otherwise wouldn't be aware of. For instance, last night we had we were jigging for burbot through a hole in the ice where we could actually look down and see because we put a light so we could look underwater. And had seven burbot come up to investigate the jig. This is a big predatory fish that like will suck back six, seven inch fish, no problem. Seven of them throughout the course of the night came up and whiffed and, and sniffed the jig or passed through under the jig. If you were fishing without the looking hole, you would get the sense that there was no activity and nothing at all going on. If you have a Vexlar. Unless you have a Vexlar. Explain the Vexlar. So Vexlar basically is depth finder, fish finder. Um, if you don't have a camera, which we normally don't have a camera, so we use that to check all the depths, but it basically is a circle, and then it will sound the bottom and have a real dark red line where the bottom is. And then as you jig, your jig's normally like green or You can yellow. see your jig going up and down. Yeah, so when you jig... You can watch your the light on it go up and down, and then as a fish comes in for, like, eel pout, they'll come up from the bottom generally. So you'll see a red line come up from the bottom red line and then follow the jig. It's like a video game, match up yeah. the lines and you win. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> but the thing about it is, like, it's like, they're very responsive, so it's kind of real time. Like, there's a delay with sonar. Yeah, like a regular boat sonar. Yeah, where you have a, like a display screen and it's kind of like tracking your history. It's just like a real-time portrayal of what's going on to the point where if you lift your rod to work your jig, you're watching like an exact replication of where your jig's at in the time. There's no delay whatsoever. Exactly. But I can't believe like going my whole life and not ever using those things. I can't believe it either. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know how you like ice fishing. You don't have a Vexlar. I don't know. I guess I just like it like a deeper old timey way. Oh, it's just you're like when you're just fishing blind, you never know if there's a fish under you. Like with the Vexlar, at least you know if there's fish down there or not at all times. You know, that's like a a thing that comes up with people griping about technologies like that. Well, this this is a very old school technology too. Like my grandpa had one. So is that right? It was it wasn't colored, but yeah, my dad had one that was it was like an LCD screen. It didn't work real well in the cold at all. It was just gray, black and white scale. But like, you know, but you're familiar with the people that will say, "Oh, it takes all the challenge out of it," <laughs> right? And I think that like stuff like that can increase effectiveness. But a thing that I always point out to people when having like this conversation about whether it's sonar or whatever else is you learn a lot more like it enhances your understanding of the environment and what's around you and how it all relates 
Absolutely. So you like you come like it's not like you have it's not like oh now that I have this device like a uh, like a GPS I know or not sorry now that I have a sonar device when I'm fishing I can just turn my brain off and now I don't need to learn anything about fish. It's like having a sonar has taught me shitloads about fish because you understand like where they are when they're there and not hitting when they're there and are hitting and you come away with it if you stripped it away from me. Now, if whatever it came, became illegal to have it, I would be like, well, thank God for the time that I had with it because I'd learned so much usable stuff about how fish operate. Yeah, how to jig, how fast. do you When they come in and they don't bite, do you go up, make them chase up? Do you go down to the bottom, they'll go down? What size jig's working? Um, it gives you a lot more information. If you don't have a flasher, you're just hoping something bites your jig. And some days that works great, but... When you're going into new lakes and finding new territory and I uh, want to get something dialed in, it's a it's a good tool. But there's like Flasher we should explain as a synonym for the Vexlar. Well Vexlar's so, a brand name. Yeah. 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 Vexlar's brand name? Yeah. So when you like when I was younger though, if you like if you were gonna strike out to go ice fishing, heading out the door, it would be typically a very like rudimentary setup. So that was your childhood. Yeah. So, well, no, it depends on it depends on to what level we were going out. So, like for instance, cause if it was if we were going out to ice fish the lake you grew up on, you could go as simple as this: you'd have a bucket, and in that bucket you'd have one or two rods. In your pocket, you'd have a chew tin full of maggots. You'd have a little film canister full of jigs, and then if the ice was like six inches or less, you'd carry with you a spud to chop a hole. And depending on the air temp, you might not even have a scooper to strain out the ice chunks. And you'd be like out ice fishing like that. Like basically nothing. 20 bucks worth of stuff. Or you'd go out expedition grade fishing where all of a sudden it's you're introducing, like we have thousands of dollars worth of stuff with us right now. Easily. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Just the flashers alone. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it can like, it, it like takes... Ice angling takes many different uh, takes many different kind of forms, you know. And I think it just kind of winds up being that, like, the level of passion you bring to it or how much you're dying to catch a fish. But out here, you guys are, like, a thing that you guys do in Alaska is different than most people, too, is you kind of do, like, a sort of, like, expedition-ish outing. Like, explain where we are now. You don't have to tell, like, where we are, but sort of, like, talk about what it goes in to get to a place like this and be prepped up for a place like this. Yeah, so we had uh, several hours on the road and then uh, about 25-mile snowmobile run um, into the lake. Rigged up for everything for from start small end to fish up. So spearing whitefish, all that gear, jigging lake trout and burbot and tip-up fishing for burbot yep now the ice fish like kind of like a main i'm gonna talk about a little bit about the different apparatuses that people use to catch fish through the ice like as a kid we would mostly jig for perch and bluegills or panfish crappies perch bluegills but then you'd have like for big fish you have this thing called a tip-up and a tip-up is what do you guys do you guys have do you guys call them do you guys use the word dead stick for tip-up no no when you guys say dead stick what's that mean it's a rod that's not being jigged just with a piece of bait. 
That's your term for a dead. That's a dead. That's the term for a dead stick. What's that? That's the term for a dead stick. A rod not being jigged. Yeah, just hanging in the water. Usually next to like you'd be jigging a tube jig in one hole, and then you'd have this other rod that just has a piece of bait on it, not moving at all. And that's your dead stick. Yeah, that's a term I hadn't heard. We would just call that like a a rod over there with some bait on it, (laughs) (laughs) Or, or something like that. But like, so a tip up is this is what a tip up is. And there's many different companies that make tip-ups. But a tip-up would be... Man, I don't even know where to begin describing a tip-up. Spool line. A spool line. That has a spool of line in which a spring-loaded flag holds the line in place until a fish bites. Then the fish can free spool and the flag goes up so you know you have a bite. And you can watch it from a distance. And you take, depending on your area's regulations, like in some lakes, you can put a live fish on the hook. Like Not in Alaska. No. Nowhere in Alaska. No. Okay. You can't use live bait in freshwater at all. Anywhere in the whole damn state. Yeah. Which is weird because usually like rules here are a bit more lax. But like in the Midwest, most places you can use live bait. Mm-hmm. Um, the argument against like what they don't want, when people prohibit live bait, what they're generally trying to prohibit is they're trying to prohibit you purposefully or inadvertently introducing species of fish into bodies of water where they don't belong. Yep. So that you would like take some suckers or whatever, shiners, suckers, some kind of fish, and you'd catch them out of one lake or buy them somewhere, drive to an area where that fish is not a native fish, and you fish and you get done and you dump your bait down the hole and you just did what they call bucket biology and introduced <laughs> a new species of fish into an ecosystem where it didn't previously exist. And a lot of fish get moved around that way. And also that you would introduce diseases into waters that you don't normally fish. But like growing up Michigan, like no one's going to set a tip up. No one in their right mind is going to set a tip up in Michigan that doesn't have a live fish on the end so you rig a live fish you hook them generally like right kind of under the dorsal fin and you send them down under the water and you set your tip up up and so you get that thing set to the right depth where you want it and we used to you know we'd fish pike six feet off the bottom however you're going to set it up and then you position the flag so that when a fish hits the thing and starts pulling line the flag pops up and you might be able to set anywhere from two to six tip ups out and you put them all up. Everyone sits around, shuffles around on the ice, talks. A lot of people then begin getting drunk. <laughs> and then eventually a flag comes up and someone yells, flag, flag. And you run over there and lift the thing up and then hand line the fish up. And that is like, because of the unknown factor, that is one of the more exciting things on this planet. Absolutely. And it's hard to appreciate how fun it is to see a flag pop (laughs) until you've done it. And once you've done it, you love it. It's just, it's like, there's been times when there's just like a flag sitting in one of our sleds. We're not using it, right? But that flag, for whatever reason, is popping up in the air. You just see a flag in the air and that instinct in your body is triggered. Yeah. That you've developed over a lifetime of waiting for flags to pop. Yep. Uh, as young as youngsters, we would sometimes like most of the rules on tip offs are usually this varies, but generally it needs to be that you're like tending it, 
Okay, it needs to be your like in your immediate control. How do they word it usually? Closely attended. Closely attended, not just attended, but yeah, closely, closely attended. Closely attended. Meaning you can't go set them somewhere and then come back the next day to see what you caught. Generally, I'm sure there's exceptions to this, but generally you got to keep an eye on it. So when the ice, when we were kids, we did this now and then, when the ice was good for ice skating, we would be able to set our tip-ups way far apart because you could see them from a long ways away. Then you just would skate around checking them. And it was like kind of like, like hockey with fish, just moving around chasing tip-ups. But typically, you just like set them out, you scatter them kind of out through the ice around your shanty and observe them. And that's tip-up fishing. And what we've been doing at night for burbot, like burbot's a weird fish because I want to cover here, we've been talking about this a whole bunch, but different names. So like, <laughs> did I already talk about different names for burbot? No. Mm-mm. Okay. I, like the official name is what, Brant? The scientific name? Scientific name. Loda Loda. Loda Loda? Yep. How's it spelled? L-O-T-A. Really? Loda Loda. Where you're like what you know that fish as might depend a little bit on where you're from. I when I first heard of the fish, I heard of it as a ling. But I became suspicious of that name only later when I learned about the saltwater ling cod. But people call them a ling, even though it's a freshwater cod. People will call them an eel pout. Which you've heard that in Minnesota? That's the main uh term. Someone told me it's the main term, I think, if you live south of Highway 2. <laughs> yeah, once you get, uh, like, the first time I ever heard anyone refer to them as lawyers was Lake of the Woods area. So, up, like, getting into closer to Canada, I think that term might have more of a Canadian origin. Yeah, I heard, okay, that's interesting, because my friend Doug Duran, who lives in southwest Wisconsin... He had spent time living in Dora Peninsula. They definitely call them lawyers there. He says yeah. they call them, yeah. He, had, he knew that the guys there referred to them as lawyers. The first time I ever heard the fish referred to as a lawyer was not far off Dora Peninsula, but it was fishing out of Garden Peninsula in Michigan's UP, which kind of thumbs down southward. And the guys out on that peninsula call them lawyers. And as he explained to me, he's like, do you want to know why they call it a lawyer? And he opened it up and showed me that its heart sits right next to its vent. Or one might say like, because he'd say like the heart's right close to the asshole. That's how you know it's a lawyer. So that was what they called lawyers. When I first heard of the fish, even though I grew up in a state that has some in the big northern waters, we didn't catch them where we ice fished. We never talked about them. I got to Montana and they call them ling in Montana. Then they learned it was burbot. And I learned that some of you boys call them eel pouts. And then there's another word, if you look in fish books, that I haven't heard anybody ever call them is clench. Yeah, and on the East Coast, they call them cusk. Oh, maybe that's it. Didn't we see clench, though? I haven't I've heard never heard of that. A that. cusp? Cusk. That's the East Coast? C-U-S-K, like uh, New Hampshire. That's what they call them out there. Yep. Either way, if you're from the South and you don't know about this, it's because it's a northern tier fish. It's a fish that's distributed across the north. So, and around the globe. And around, oh yeah, Brant, like, yeah, talk about that, Brant. Like, what a circumpolar species Yeah, they're is. circumpolar, so they're uh, on multiple continents across the northern part of the globe. Other examples of circumpolar critters would be... Polar bears. Polar bears. Well, brown bears, grizzly bears are circumpolar, were circumpolar. The blue mussel is circumpolar 
I believe the, the the northern pike, but there's like some variations. But the northern pike yep, is northern the fish you'll find. Is. Like, so a circumpolar thing would be like imagine a certain latitude band. Um, if you just take that latitude band and wrap it around the whole Earth, you'll find that species are very closely related critters, all within that same latitude band wrapped around the whole Earth. So it's circumpolar fish, and you were saying too that they've been extirpated in places from Europe. I think there's been areas where they've been overfished in Europe. Yeah. Which is funny because in Minnesota, where you boys are from, you were saying that a guy might be want to pull a burbot on the ice and leave it laying. Yeah. I saw that we'd have um, permanent ice shacks on the lacks. And when I was younger, I remember seeing just piles of these things. And no one liked them because they'd leave their um, their rattle reels down at night and then eel pout would come bite the line and then tangle all the lines up when they're trying to fish for walleyes oh so that's what the, that's that's why i didn't like them yeah well, that's what i think they're ugly and i don't think they're at least especially when i was a kid there was not a reputation for them being good to eat and i never even tried eating one till i moved to alaska there's no walleyes here you got to ice fish for something figured out that not only are burbot fun to catch and much similar to walleye fishing but they're absolutely delicious yeah and, and not just that but i remember like guys that uh commercial fishermen have an ability in some places where they're like had our commercial whitefish seasons that they'll even be able to market the bourbon oh really yeah spring is a great time to do something with your family do some spring cleaning which i kind of started today outside planning outdoor activities which i'm always doing taking a little trip to hawaii with your kids for spring break which i just did which was great you know what else you can do for your family this spring, you can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before a thousand times, I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Even if you already have a life insurance policy through work, it may not offer enough protection for your family's needs, and it may not follow you if you leave your job. So save time and money and provide your family with a financial safety net using Policy Genius. Head to PolicyGenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. It's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Dugs, I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Dugs' place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them 
to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. Onyx Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt this turkey season. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. These things are super cool as a gift, especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, It's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving an Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. So the, the, the tricky part about burbot, the first time I started catching burbot through the ice, in fact, I never caught a burbot not through the ice, but the first place we started doing it, we would go out. There's a lake we'd go fish. We'd go fish for perch during the daytime. And then it'd get to be dusk. And you would have like a narrow window of opportunity around dusk time to set up tip-ups and catch the burbot because their bite, like perch, you cannot catch a bur- perch at dark. Like there's some fish that don't want to eat when it's dark out. Pike. And some fish that don't want to eat when it's light out. Yeah, pike, the pike bite ends. The perch bite ends. You can get bass to eat at night. Burbot liked to eat at dusk, even though we just caught a tanker at noon today. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Like a general thing, man. A yep. general thing. So what we've been doing is going out and at night out here on this lake in, in interior Alaska, setting up tip-ups, which we explained earlier, for burbot. And real quick, can you guys explain like the regs around uh how many lines you're allowed to use when and all that kind of stuff? Yeah, it varies by water body. In uh, most of the state, you're, whatever the daily limit is, you're allowed to put down that many hooks. Um, on any water bodies where it's more... So on pretty much any water body, you can fish two lines for any species of fish through the ice. Um, on places where you're allowed more than to keep more than two burbot in a day... You can have as many hooks down as is the limit, but um, as soon as you do that, you're only fishing for burbot, so then there's additional regulations about hook size and uh, the bait resting on the bottom and different um, criteria to try to, I think, limit bycatch of other species. Yeah, this is the thing that I feel like, we talked about this the other day, it's a thing that's not well understood by people who don't hunt and fish, the, the like how like tightly regulated and detail-oriented the regulations are around all kinds of like harvest of wild resources. So I'm trying to think of a way to approach like the thing you're talking about with hook size. So like as Brant was saying a minute ago, you can fish when you're ice fishing, just generally ice fishing where you're trying to hope to catch a, a variety of species. You can fish two rods. The minute you commit that you're only fishing burbot 
it's like, okay, now that you've committed to the only fish and burbot, you can jump up and put five, six. It depends on the lake, yeah. On a lot of, on a lot of lakes, it's five a day. Um, in some areas and some, like, in rivers, it's 15 a day. Okay, so let's, say, let's just say we're in a lake that's five a day. That's an easy number to work with. So all of a sudden, you're like, no, 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 man, I'm only after burbot. So they're like, okay, the, the regulations basically say to you, okay, since you're only catching burbot, we're going to make sure that you're only catching burbot. At that point, they dictate to you that you have to have a hook with a three-quarter inch gape. Greater than. Greater yeah. than three-quarter inch gape. And your bait has to be laying on the bottom of the lake. Resting on the bottom. So what they're trying to do there is be like, okay, if you're making a play where you're really just doing this, we're going to allow you to have more lines, but we're going to do added regulations on top of that to prevent, like you said a minute ago, from catch and bycatch. So when we've been setting up at night, we're going out and putting down like enough tip-ups where it's hard to keep track how many tip-ups you have down. <laughs> like where you're kind of wandering around the dark a little bit trying to find them all because the snow's so damn deep. When you dig it out and drill a hole through the ice, you, your your tip up is sort of subsurface, and they can vanish on you. And explain what you do, like how you get bait and how you prep your bait for burbot. Uh, we mainly do a personal use uh, hooligan fishery. Sorry, in this. I'm gonna open the vent. You getting warm? Should we turn that heater off? It's off already. Off. Wow, it's that, it warm, that warm with, with no heater. Yeah, I thought someone turned it back on. Yeah. yeah, I'm sweating. <laughs> Hold yeah, on, we, let me open this other one too. Did you pause it? No. What were what were we talking about? Oh, how we get our bait? Yeah, candlefish and bait. Yeah, we go out dip netting and. Uh, oh, we're not. We're not. We're, oh, we're not live right no, now. No, we are. Oh, I didn't pause it. All right, so go ahead. We uh, dip net our hooligan in the spring and package them. Some right, of them. Yeah, you got to back up and talk about that for me because people have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> they're a smelt. They're. Uh, you know, some fair number of people are probably familiar with like rainbow smelt in the Great Lakes region. They're also a smelt, but they're larger and oilier. Um, they're common. One of their common names is candlefish because um, you can get so much oil out of them. Because if you dry them out, you can light them like a candle, which I still haven't tried. Like I'm not exactly sure which end you're supposed to light, but um, <laughs> <laughs> um. <laughs> I didn't know that. Th- I thought it was because you could render out oil that was flammable. So you can so light It's the mainly fish. that, but you can, from what I understand, you can dry them out and they'll burn, like, for an extended period of time off that oil. And, like, the, the, they have two spellings. I'm gathering one must be the kind of official spelling, which is E U C H A L O N. Yeah. Hooligan. Hooligan. Oh, that's. I don't think it's actually pronounced hooligan. I think it's pronounced ulicon. Ulicon? Yeah. But then there's a popularized spelling, which is hooligan like those hooligans who keep vandalizing my car. H-O-O-L-I-G-A-N. Or candlefish. And it's an anadromous fish. Yep. Lives out in the ocean. Runs up the rivers to spawn. And there's so many that... I've never done this. I've done it for Rainbow Smell years ago a fair bit. But they're running up so much that you're just dipping blind. You're dipping a net blind into the water. Yeah, and they uh, spawn in the lower reaches of silty rivers, typically. Like glacial silt? Right. So they're rivers that you don't really have any visibility in anyways. Um, There's some exceptions to that, but 
so it's mainly you're blind dipping, but when it's good, uh, you're getting good numbers in each in each swipe with the net. And it's just a small, like a bait net. I don't know what, 12 or 14 inch diameter? Yeah, it's probably, yeah, it's probably about 12, I think. And you, and you scoop down and go with the basket, with the mouth of the net aiming downriver and swipe down. With yep. the current. To catch them coming up. Yep. Hey, did you ever, when you were growing up, did you guys drop net for smelt? No. I, I did very little of that. Um, I, w- I didn't really grow up in the Great Lakes area, so. Oh, really? Oh, nope. yeah, I guess not. Yeah, you were way far away from the Great Lakes. So, uh, yeah, like fishing rainbow smelt, we would dip net like what Brant's talking about, but usually sight fishing. Now and then you'd have to blind up. Usually you'd have land or you'd put a, you'd sink a pole, you'd wade out into a stream close to the mouth or float into the, into the lake and drive a pole into the mud and hang a lantern from the pole. And you'd wait there in waders, and you'd see the shadows coming by, and you'd dip them like that. Or you'd go out to pier walls and drop a 36-inch by 36-inch square net on the bottom of the lake near the mouth. And when schools would pass over, you'd lift that drop net up. Oh, cool. And catch them. And you could, if you had it dialed and had your kind of gear right adjusted to the sensitivity of the fish, like a lot of times you had to run pretty thin monofilament and have your mesh be the right color where it matched on the bottom or else they wouldn't go over it. But once you got it dialed, you could catch, like, extraordinary numbers of smell like that. Like, I was talking about one night we caught, I mean, people catch many more than this, but I remember a, a night in particular we caught eight five-gallon buckets of rainbow smell in a That's night. That's a lot of smell. And they're very good to eat. <laughs> oh, my God, they're good. Yeah. But the the, the candlefish or hooligans, they're not, they don't have this, quite the reputation of rainbow smell. No, there are people that really like to eat them, um, but they're oilier and uh they're larger so the bones are a little bit more prominent when you're biting into them and they don't crisp up nice like a because like they're rainbow soggy smell. with oil yeah when danny cooks them my brother cooks them he cleans them like a smelt which you eat them whole just take the guts out he fries them like a smelt but then he puts them on a on a cooling rack in his oven that sits over a baking sheet and then he puts it that on 300 degrees and puts them in there for 20, 30 minutes to drip all the oil out. And when you pull that wow. thing out, that bacon sheet is full of oil. Yep. And then he eats the candlefish. And my wife... <laughs> That's who, a lot of work. Yeah. My wife will eat anything, man. My wife was, like, not big into candlefish. But she'll eat, you know what I mean? She's pretty good about stuff. Yeah, I know she, the, the first one I tried to eat... I cut a stick and tried to cook it over a fire, and after gutting it and everything, the uh, as it was cooking, it, all the oil just basically squeezed it right off the stick and fell into the fire. That greasy. <laughs> yeah. You know, as the meat firmed up, it just squeezed it right off. So to get back around to the bait, you're primarily, when you go out for hooligans, you're primarily going out for bait, which you use for halibut and everything. Yep. Yeah, and I mean, herring is uh, a great bait, but um, there's not as many opportunities to catch it yourself, so you're looking at a lot of money. Dude, it is so expensive. Yeah, buying herring is expensive, man. Yep. So this is a, it's a great bait fish that um, for residents, there's there's no limit on that fishery. Um, Are non-residents allowed to dip hooligans? No. Not at all? No, but it's a, per- it's a personal use fishery, so it's limited to residents. 
Okay, so then walk through how you turn it into burbot bait. Uh, this is a pretty elaborate process. I like to brine. I like to brine my bait. Joe and Bryce uh, like to use more freshest frozen natural natural really? hooligan because you um like is it aesthetically or performance i don't like getting blue dye all over my hands fishing all day <laughs> i know this brand's hands are blue <laughs> or green whatever the hot color is for the day or red some days yeah so you guys are going you're like taking your candlefish freezing them in gallon size ziplocs i like thawing to va- them out for bait yeah i like to vacuum seal a bunch just in a single layer until i get sick of doing it because i think it keeps them fresher and they thaw out quicker yep um but at some point you just gotta be done with processing them and yeah, I mean you got 15 gallons of that stuff <laughs> 15 gallons of hooligan or however much you want i know i normally just go with a cooler not a, like half the size of a regular beer cooler and I'll fill that up full, and then that's normally good for the year. And that's how much you need. And yeah. that takes how long? To net that? Um, <laughs> 15 minutes sometimes. Oh, okay. So it could be, like, hot and heavy. Oh, yeah. And, it, like, talk about brine and bait for a minute. So I like to brine bait for a few reasons. One is it helps to firm it up. So yes. hooligan can be soft. Um, so it's a the basic component in in a brine is salt. Um that helps to draw moisture out of the out of the meat and firm it up and then i also like to add various scents and dyes and um mainly because i just don't have that much i don't get to fish all that often and uh there's times when your bait can matter well relatively like relative to how much you wish you fish right so (laughs) i want to make it count when i go out yeah no i got you um but you're not a half-asser Nope, and if there's any, uh, there's any little thing that might help help you catch a couple more on a given day, I like to try it. So you're using salt to firm the thing up, and then you can buy like commercially produced like bait enhancements. Yeah, you can buy commercially produced brines that are already have a dye in them, or you can make there's different recipes with uh, adding different things into your brine to do the firmness, and then so you can. Make your own brine with your own materials, which is usually like salt and powdered milk um, and water. And then you can add herring oil or dye, turn it whatever color you want, um, or buy the stuff that's already made up commercially. Now, have you been brining halibut bait too? I have. I started doing that. Because I just salt brine it, but I never do any of the other stuff to it. So what I like to do is brine it in a liquid brine and then drain it off the liquid and then uh, put just straight salt on it and that'll help keep it firm and keep it from freezing which when you're out ice fishing it's annoying when your bait's freezing yes um you use a rock salt or just regular like table salt i actually use table salt we, you know at, at your cabin see we usually use rock salt yeah. but i think that the finer salt helps to coat it better yeah um more surface area so these hooligans then are blue, can be blue, can oh, be oh, red, can oh, be normal. I see white a whitefish, fish. yeah, but he's already he? gone. He's already gone? Well, I mean, he kind of <laughs> came into the zone just enough so I could see him. And Where did he come from, the deep? Yeah. And just did a 180 back in Man, there. Why are they like changing their attitude so much lately? We're in a real suck stretch here, man. We're due. Yeah, but they're just not coming in and lingering. 
little pass-throughs. Well, at least we know they're around still. You know what I was talking about TV earlier? It'd be like if you were watching TV, and just now and then the program flickered on. (laughs) (laughs) Right? And then it flickered off again. That's what this is like. And it flickers on, and you're like, there's like an action scene happening. And then it flickers off. You're like, oh, man, what happened? (laughs) (laughs) Heartbreaking. So, uh, catching Burbit now. Do you, how convinced are you that Burbit liked to be down deep? I'm real convinced of that. But that, that you think that the evening, the low light triggers a Burbit to, he's going to come up and hunt the shallows. Yep. Come up, spend the daylight uh, not moving around, not being very active in deep water, and then coming up in the shallow flats to chase bait fish and feed. They, you know, they, they're a bottom, they relate to the bottom. They're, they kind of have that rough, rough fish look to them, maybe like a catfish. So they, you, you could see how there'd be a perception that they're like this lazy, scavenging bottom feeder fish. Yeah. yeah. Um, which is possibly another reason, you know, slimy bottom feeder, why they get that nickname lawyer. But they, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, they're actually they feed mainly on live fish and they it's like the kind of lawyer who has a billboard in las vegas <laughs> in a fight call me <laughs> but they're very aggressive so and uh except for last night i guess under our hole they weren't yes, very exactly. aggressive. We, had, we found seven that were not at all aggressive they were curious but not aggressive so it seems um it seems like a kind of like an unassailable truth that burbot like to live down deep during the daylight hours and then as the sun goes down they come up shallow to hunt like do you feel that's pretty true yeah i think that's pretty standard in lakes in particular in lakes in particular so what we do is to fish them you're going out and at dusk setting up your tip-ups in the deepest we've been running has been 15 feet 20 feet 15 20 feet of water up to as shallow as where that fish has to be bumping his head on the ice as he swims around. Like, oh, you wouldn't really think there's enough room for it to fit under there. Yeah, it's like, like I, I mean, literally, a gap of 12 or 16 inches between the bottom of the ice and the mud. And you have a bait laying there, and there's fish that are swimming around in that narrow, that narrow gap of free water hunting. Or spurting eggs. Because it's like the spawn time of year. And you set them all up. And then you either get like wham bam. Or just the stillness. Yeah, we've seen we've seen both. So the first night we set up. By the end of the night we had. Ten. Ten bourbon. Yep. Mm-hmm. Big fish. From what to what inches? Well, the top end would be 14 pounds is the biggest so far. The small end would be what, like three or four pounds? Nah. Maybe about that. Oh, there you go. Oh, whitefish? Yeah. Oh, oh, skirting the edge. What is he doing up there? Come on. Lure him down. I think we got to move. No, no. Move to where? No, I think we got to move the jig away from the spear hole so when they skirt the edge they come under us i completely disagree 
because we've had somebody have come up. We've had somebody come up to smell the thing. Not for the last couple hours. Yeah, I don't know. Think about it like this, Brant. Let's say, okay, I want to paint. I want to just to, just to bring you into uh, the debate here. We have an attractant. Basically, we just have like a rig that you would use to catch a whitefish. A it's, little jig. What's that? A little jig. Yeah, we have a little jig with a little flasher above it, and the little jig is tipped with a with a wax worm, and we're jigging it, and in the center of the big spearing hole, and we've had quite a number of whitefish literally come up to the thing, oddly not bite it, but just come up to it and put their nose against it. Some come under it, some come along to the side, but it seems to be the last couple have kind of skirted around the edge. Brant thinks that we would go drill a hey, hole. there's one right there. Yep, that's him coming back. You got to angle side out. shoot yeah. it? I might side shoot him because he's not playing get, not <sighs> playing ball with us. Oh, this is going to be a tough shot. Yeah. Holy but, cow. Well, uh, he's still. Is just, he going to come back? He's just holding tight. Oh. He's just standing there. Or not standing. You know what I mean? <laughs> like if a fish Floating. could stand, he'd be standing? Hold on a can you see him still? Do you still see him? Yeah, I still see him. Is he looking this way? He's like right underneath you, Brant. He's just messing around right up in the zone. Is he, he coming in? Uh, not quite. Do you still see him? Yeah. Really? Yeah, he's right there. Try going down you know to the what? bottom lift with that, the lift, jig. Oh, I was going to say lift the jig oh. all the way to the surface. <laughs> One or the other. Yeah, try that. <laughs> just for a minute. He's going to come right up to the hole. I don't oh, see him anymore. Oh, my gosh. I've never seen that in all what? my years of ice fishing. <laughs> <laughs> What's the fish doing now? Uh, he, he went away. He'll be back. I'm going to laugh if he comes and eats that wax that's floating down there. <laughs> no, I hope he it. does. That's a natural, nice natural presentation. Yeah, that's beautiful. So it's going for. So, so Brandon is suggesting... Since they seem to be skirting the edge, he's suggesting going and drilling a hole over yonder. Thinking that as they skirt the edge, it'll bring them right below the spear hole. I feel it would just make it to be that when fish are investigating it, there's so much more out of sight. Where is he now? Same zone? Oh, I see him. Here, you know what? He's going to take a shot. Oh, he's coming in. I might go for him. Oh. You want to try him, Brant? Oh, no. He, did he spook? He might. I don't think he would have spooked. Here, hold that again. Because he was at least up against the bottom there, which makes him like a little bit more pinnable. I'm not saying like put it far away. And maybe even if, if we just put it like three feet away, we'd still be able to see it. But it would give, it would let them, you know, they're kind of staying like five feet away from it. Except for the ones that come up and smell it. Or the ones that come up underneath it. Right, but that hasn't been happening lately. What was I talking about? How my idea is horrible. Yeah, but even before that. <laughs> Burbot coming up, shallow to feed. Oh, so yeah, so you can like lay by like a considerable bunch of poundage on burbot meat. And I think about a burbot. It looks like, we didn't really get into what they look like. <laughs> I think it looks like a frog and a snake made love. 
where you have a a very bull it's fishy for sure it's like indisputably fishy but has a has bullfrog qualities to the head and the body is that of a like an eel-like snake-like body covered in definitely snakeheadish snakeheadish don't you think yeah when you feel them they're not snakeheadish but i think if you just looked at two pictures of, of the two fish yep oh you mean like a, not a snake's head but a snakehead fish yeah yeah for sure they have some similar similarities with like a bow fin too yep and they got that fin like the dorsal fin runs down the whole length of the thing and then he's got like a bottom what fin do you think it is on the bottom the caudal fin the caudal fin is basically along his entire bottom he also looks like a bow fin you know that fish yeah dogfish dogfish or bow fin a lot in common appearance with a bow fin but flesh wise dramatically better and they're covered in frog skin yeah slimy slimy skin like cats like more of a frogish skin than you'd find on say a catfish when you go to clean a burbot you can just make a cut through the skin and peel the skin off with a pair of pliers and then you got all the tail meat so from the vent back you can just kind of flay it off like a flay from the vent forward you're peeling off big back straps kind of and the ribs are weird because the ribs don't curve down but just kind of go straight out so you're actually flaying off like a like a sizable chunk of meat and the way that you always hear it described is it's described as poor man's lobster oh whitefish right underneath you right underneath you no jig down the hole i cannot see it here you'll find them oh all right you got them yep i'm gonna should i take this this is a risky shot do you think he's gonna turn around all right way oh, damn that's a tough shot yeah that's a tough shot kind of getting out of the oh you gotta be kidding me who tied that knot <laughs> double damn uh, someone's going swimming you know earlier i was naming off all the names that there are for burbot which is endlessly fascinating to me but did, did, when we we're naming names off that i named that some people call it poor man's lobster no I didn't talk about that. No. The reason folks call it poor man's lobster is because a a sort of the preferred way to eat burbot is to prepare it like lobster, where you take the meat and boil it like you're doing a lobster boil, dip it in melted butter, um, and just eat it boiled. But a thing that I can't figure out is you know you, you, you've had like you've been to salmon boils and other kind of fish boils yeah like do you think that the burbot like if i let's say i took a chunk of walleye and a chunk of burbot and boiled them both do you feel that you would eat the burbot and be like man that is better suited to this preparation than walleye i've often wondered that because there's not really many fish species that you cook like that just drop it in boiling water for a minute in pieces um it does have a lot a distinct lobster like texture and flavor you feel like it full-on does oh it does yeah it tastes Matt, so i mean it's like i don't know that he goes we eat them that way but i don't know why we eat them that way he's like, i just eat them that way because they're called poor man's lobster oh i think i mean they taste like a saltwater fish more than a freshwater fish 
Yeah. So you feel that that's, I'm definitely like, I definitely like, that's how I think about cooking them for sure, man. Do you guys fry them too though? I've never fried. I don't think I've, I've never fried one in my life. Yeah. I've, I've fried them. Um, usually I just don't have that much. So it's a bit of a novelty. And so it's just cool to cut them up into little, they're like when you, when you cross cut those back straps, it's like little scallops and then drop those in the salty boiling water quick and dip them in butter and i mean it's it's cool and it's like rarely have people that you're serving it to ever even ever had it or heard of a burbot before so yeah our friend randy was saying that burbots were so despised where he grew up in minnesota among walleye fishermen that if you caught a burbot people would go drill a new hole (laughs) as though the hole as though the hole had been tainted by the presence of that fish. But like, and walleye are good, but I feel like people like think, almost like think walleye are better than they actually are. Like there's a lot of fish that are as good as walleye. Yeah, you're not going to get any, in a fish house full of Minnesotans, no one's going to agree with you on that one. But Like that they feel like the walleye is just like, cat, like absolutely good. Yeah. I think what people like when they like walleye is walleye don't have any muddy taste you don't need to like do any extra kind of trimming and it's just clean white benign right it's the halibut of the fresh water yeah meaning it's like it's a blank slate there's no fish oh nice one. Oh, that's a good one see ya okay 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 <sighs> cords i got you oh, i got you i got you i got that's you. not good no but it didn't spook him somehow podcast cord went into the spirit oh man he's kind of out of my zone though he's going down he's got the spear three oh, to four feet in through it shot. i think i hit him i think he got him. did you really yeah it was a cockeyed shot yep oh he's on there all right pull him up nice, nice. work that was oh, an yeah. impressive wow. shot holy mackerel oh, that's here. how we do it careful oh, careful oh, careful oh, 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 oh. Applying for tags each year in the West can be daunting. Yeah, I apply for everything everywhere. It's daunting. You have to go to a variety of sources to formulate your best guess as to where to apply. Well, this is a thing of the past now. Onyx just launched hunt research tools to simplify the process for all hunters. This tool helps organize the data that matters, makes comparing hunt options easy, and helps hunters develop a plan based on real metrics rather than gut feelings. OnX Hunt also offers all elite members a free digital membership to Hunt and Fool, who I use, for boots on the ground, insight and knowledge, and a membership to Hunt Reminder so you never miss another deadline. Stop stressing over application season and apply with confidence in 2024. Check out OnX Hunt Research Tools, free for all OnX Hunt elite members. Not an elite member? Well, let's fix that. Use code MEATEATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com slash hunt. This is an app I use literally every day. I use it for every aspect of hunting, scouting, trapping, you name it. Looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos these things are super cool as a gift 
especially if you got mom, aunt, grandma, whoever, and you want to like keep them up to speed on what the family's up to. Okay, it's easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app, and if you're giving an Aura as a gift. You can even personalize the frame with pre-loaded photos and memories. Named the best digital picture frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things, Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. You can share photos to the frame instantly from anywhere, meaning you share videos, photos from any device, and they will instantly appear on the frame, wherever it is in the world. There's no memory card required right now. Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code MEATEATER at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So, when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out, there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless. With Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash meat eater. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. There we go. Got him. That was nice. impressive. That was impressive. Uh, underneath, <laughs> underneath us. Yeah, shot. that was like... Uh, See, uh, my sports analogies um, are so dated. I feel like that was like Larry Bird, right? <laughs> <laughs> that was like a trick shot. There we go. That's impressive. Here you go. Throw them outside. Starting to get decent number of those. Nice, nice, nice. So what happened there was the embracer. <laughs> <laughs> Brycey and Bricer. You feel like you sucked him in? I feel like you're in do you feel like you're in the driver's seat right now? Uh sometimes, but then again I, I can't tell if I'm bringing him in or spooking him away. So you don't like you're not getting the sense that like you're uh that they're coming like eyeballing that thing. Uh, some of them do, but some of them just don't really seem to care yeah. about what I'm doing here. But why are they showing up then? Here's what I'd like to know more than anything. If you, let's say all of us each had a hole like this, would we all be seeing about the same? Yeah. Is it just like a total random distribution of fish that happen to be passing through? Or are we creating a little micro environment, you know, with the jig and the light, the light difference? I guess it probably doesn't look too, no, it has looked different from their perspective. And you know what just happened is whitefish came in, was a little bit noncommittal, um, 
a lot of guys are thinking, uh, you know, Steve, he's a great man. I don't think he can pull this off. <laughs> uh, I think he's finally met his match. And, and, and in the end, I came through. That fish was far enough underneath us that I could not see it. Steve was leaning over the hole, looking under us and throwing backwards. And I couldn't even see the fish nor that the spear stuck it is how far under us it was. Yep. It was like a shot from three, ten, ten feet behind the three-point line. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Eleven feet. Uh, where were we? So, uh, Hummet, that little bit of action there. Where we're, were we? We're, we're talking, talking about, like, about eating. Relative. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Wild, the, the, walleyes. Oh, the, I was saying, I was saying that a walleye and this is not the bash on walleye because i love i like i like everything about walleye. i like catching them looking at them love eating them but i was saying it's kind of like a halibut type fish where it's sort of a blank slate it's like white flesh flakes nice clean tasting you can kind of do anything with it no one's going to eat it and be offended by it you know but i feel like walleye to me i don't know you guys should describe it. you guys have probably eaten more of them than i have i have but, never had walleye before in my life oh. <laughs> Well, I've really? never even caught walleye. Oh, that's or right. Seen There's walleye. only two Minnesotans because it's not a walleye in Alaska. No, no. Or I don't know if they're in Idaho. Or There's not, damn sure a lot of definitely not where I was fishing in the re- in the reservoir systems. Being a Minnesotan and eating a lot of walleye, I thought I think that uh, what it tasted like. Because to me, the little that I've eaten it, when I taste it, I don't taste bull to me. And you know, if you're if you're a lover of halibut, don't get mad at me. But to me, it's a little on the bland side. It's such a blank slate. Where walleye, there is some flavor there. There's a sweetness, maybe, to it. I agree, sweetness. You feel that walleye has more flavor than halibut, definitely. And I think it has a better consistency. I so think you'd rather have a pound of walleye than a pound of halibut any day. I would too. Really? I mean, I don't know that I wouldn't. But I think if you went and polled most Americans, they're just not going to agree with that. But, Brant, give your take on what walleye tastes like. Um, I think Giannis summed it up pretty good. They're, I think they're, they're mild, so they don't have a fishy taste. They don't have a strong flavor at all. Um, they can take on whatever seasonings you want to flavor them with, but they have a bit of a sweetness, and they're firm, and... Um, as opposed to halibut that can get, a, if you cook it like a touch too long, it can get a little dry or even kind of uh, threaded like chicken can. Yes. Whereas walleye, oh, fish, straight down. Straight down, yeah. Get him, Giannis. At the jig. At the jig. Come on, eagle. Nice round one. Come on, eagle. Got him. Oh, oh yeah. nice. Over his nose. Nice. Right in the head. Yeah, lift up gentle. Oh, I mean, you got him. Yep. And then swing this way. <laughs> nice shot. With your reactions. Oh, no. That, well, that was I excitement. I say, oh, 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 about a miss. Oh, look at that. I think I got you him on the, got him on in the, the Right in the nose. nose. Nice shot. Top look, you stoned him. Look at He's out. He's not even flapping his tail. Yeah, bring him up. Yep, there you go. Oh, oh man. That's oh, a beautiful oh, shot. Through the brain. Giannis, the plug <laughs> Putellis, man. Nice shot. Nice shot. Man. Okay. First one, we'll chalk it up to luck. <laughs> Giannis is batting a thousand lifetime spearfishing. <laughs> <laughs> Next right. time we see Giannis, he's going to have a hat that says the dark house on it. 
<laughs> nice shot. Okay, back to walleyes. Because <laughs> we're going to get the whitefish edibility soon, very soon. Joe, do you have any thoughts on the flavor of walleye? No, I mean, like Steve was saying, most people would probably prefer halibut over walleye, but I, I'm with Brant. I like the walleye more, and I don't know if that's because it's not as readily available to us up here or if it's because I just like the texture better. You mean because in Alaska you can't turn around without bumping into a halibut? Yeah. Or a bag of halibut flays? Yeah, I'd, so... Along that lines and how it matters what's most abundant. So when I was back in Minnesota ice fishing with buddies this winter, I brought, you know, halibut to share with everyone and salmon. And none of my Minnesota buddies who catch walleyes all the time, they all thought I was crazy saying that I like walleye better than halibut. They say, oh, halibut's better 10 times out of 10. Because they don't have it and it's different. But they have a freezer full of walleye, yeah. When I say that a fish is approachable or like people like it and it's a blank slate, what I mean is this is like, okay, take a fish like mackerel, okay? For a lot of people, it's too oily, too dark, too strong flavored. But there are people who are going to like know how to cook it and wind up loving it so much that it makes up for the detractors. And I think in. With halibut or walleye, it'd be like there's people who kind of like, I don't generally like fish. Like, I'm not a fish person, but I like walleye. I'm not a fish person, but I like halibut because it's it's just a kind of a, and I'm not talking down on it or being mean about it, but I'm saying it's, it's kind of a safe, mild, like it doesn't inspire a lot of, uh, it doesn't inspire a ton of love and it doesn't inspire a ton of hate, except for it inspires a lot of love true and i think burbot falls right into that same category it it meaning what a mild white meat that um isn't strong but has a a good natural flavor yeah and a good texture and a good texture with white fish see oh hold on can i add something to this whole uh uh poor man's lobster oh yeah poor man's lobster when yeah. i was working at old tuscanini in Beaver Creek, Colorado. That's where he got the name Long Tong Yanni. We because he because uh, he manned the long tongs at the Tuscany over right? the old grill station, working the grill, and he had a set of long tongs and uh, Long Tong Yanni. Um, now we, they call we'd him bring Yacht, it, we'd the bring plug. We <laughs> we'd bring in a fish uh, called a monkfish, and that was also that's got a good liver. Uh, referred to to as uh, poor man's lobster. It and was? Yep. Cooked the same fish? way? Yeah. No. Yeah. Monkfish liver or monkfish flesh? Monkfish. I never heard that. And again, I have I mean, I, 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 I don't fit, you know, it's like I don't fish for them, so we don't talk about them as much. But I, I, that's just, yeah, I had never heard that before. Hey, Brant, can you touch on, um, can you touch on burbot liver? Kind of like. Start out by how they have a gigantic liver and proceed from there. Yeah, so everyone's familiar with cod liver oil, right? Um, and so, as we've talked about, burbot are the only species of freshwater cod, so they have the same trait of a very large and oily or fatty liver. 
um, that it can be cooked in a few ways. It's I think it's a it's a delicacy in some places. I think um, in France, I think burbot liver is popular. Freshwater burbot liver, or of course freshwater, but yeah, freshwater fish liver. Um, and so I've just recently started doing this as I learned about it, but um, I've had. Did you do this because you heard about burbot liver eating, or just because you're like, well, hey, it's got a big liver like a cod. I'm going to try to cook it. I actually because I heard about it as burbot, okay. and it was introduced as well. It's a cod, so it's similar. Yep, I got you. Um, but the way that I've done it the last couple of years is just sliced thin, and then drop it in an ungreased frying pan and that like a dry pan a dry pan and that um there's so much oil in that liver it'll just create its own grease it'll render out and then you're basically just frying it in its own oil and it'll just it'll crisp up real nice um on both sides so you're just you're just kind of zapping it once you get oil in there and you don't want to overheat that oil because i made that mistake and it uh smells fairly bad but when you just just brown it it kind of crisps up and it's it's not gamey at all like it's a real nice flavor and that just add a little bit of salt it's good it's good yeah. do you ever drink the oil afterward or is that too strong i have not that that oil has definitely some flavor to it that reminds me of two um fish oil stories years ago i was down in you know the, the the species of Asiatic carp that have gotten into the Mississippi drainage? Yeah, big head. Well, there's head. like several. So there's big head. Silver. Silver. That's kind of the primary ones. The flying carp being the silvers, and there's another one, big head carp. And these are carp that they were using to clean aquaculture facilities. So these are like herbivorous carp. Um filter feed well, yeah filter feeding carp that they would put in these aquaculture facilities where they're raising catfish or tilapia and they'd use the carp to maintain the tanks and during flooding uh you know the the, the aquaculture facilities would be like overrun with water the carp escape and get out into the main stem river channel and now they're all over and the and in some of these stretches of river the primary biomass of fish in these rivers is these carp so there's been a lot of brouhaha about what to do with them. And there are some commercial fishermen that are operating um, up and down the Ohio and Mississippi rivers, and I think some other branches of it as well, netting these carp up, and they're sending them overseas to Israel for gefilte fish and various other processed fish preparations. And people for a while were thinking, oh, if we could just catch them all, um, we'll take care of the problem. And so they would set requirements where they want to be able to catch all the carp out but not destroy the game fish. So they would come out and say, like, okay, you can use a whatever-inch mesh net. You can use a four-inch mesh net to catch carp, thinking that your game fish can be small enough to fit through the mesh. And they could go into these areas and pretty much remove, in, in, in very specific areas, in certain situations, they could go in and put a real dent on the large introduced carp but what they would find then is you would still have the same poundage of carp in the watershed it would just be the poundage would be comprised of much smaller fish rather than much larger fish it's just this ongoing problem and if you want to go read about it you can go read about all the different thoughts in it one of the most pressing issues around these introduced carp species is that they will get up into the great lakes 
watershed. Now, you know, of course, the Ohio, Missouri, Mississippi, Tennessee, right? These all flow. These all wind up flowing into the Mississippi. Fish, fish, fish. Fish. Oh, yep. Got him. Oh, Ooh. spooked. What spooked him? The jig. the jig. The jig. Just too aggressive. You drop it on the ground? Yeah, I was, well, I was starting to pick it up again, and then you guys started yelling fish, so I tried to set it on the bottom. Yeah, <laughs> do you mind tending that line a little bit for me? Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe just hang it there and just stop jigging it. I don't know, man. I kind of like that. I don't know. I feel like you... Well, eat. like when it, when the fish comes in. Oh, when he comes in? Yeah, instead of just dropping it to the ground, like a quick movement. Instead just... of scaring the bejeevas out of them. <laughs> so... I'm off on a little bit of a side note here, but it's going to continue for a minute. Because a big fear about these Asiatic carp that have invaded the Mississippi drainage areas. Straight down. Is that another one? That's a different one. That's a bad angle. I might wait. Oh, now he's not even a contender anymore. I have a shot at him. Do you? Yep. Take it. Will you man that line? Yeah, you're good. That's a big angle. Oh, oh, he's right below us now. Oh. Definitely dodged that one. He dodged it, didn't he? Yeah, that one was skedaddling as that thing was coming down. He moved? It sure seemed like it. Holy mackerel. I thought I had him. Who's up? Giannis is up. No, I'm up. Oh, that's right. I stole that from (laughs) (laughs) him. So a fear with these Asiatic carp species that have gone and invaded this river system is that they would get into the Great Lakes. And what I was saying is like, so the Tennessee, Ohio, Missouri, like everything flows into the Mississippi. Um, the river that Ben Met, the writer Ben Metcalf calls the American heartworm and flows out into the Gulf of Mexico, you know, in New Orleans, around New Orleans. So the Great Lakes, that whole system flows out through the St. Lawrence Seaway into the Atlantic. But years ago... They made a shipping canal to connect the Great Lakes watershed to the Mississippi watershed. So you can now do what you would not have been able to do, you know, 100 years ago. Or, do you know when they dug that canal? I don't. 200 years ago. I, I, I don't want to mess that up. 200 years ago, you'd not have been able to go up the Mississippi and then finagle your way into the Great Lakes. Those different watersheds. But they made an artificial connecting point. And they're afraid that these carp that are now in this river... And the Mississippi drainage will make the jump by going through this shipping canal and invading the Great Lakes. And what they've done to prevent this from happening is the Army Corps of Engineers runs an electro barrier. So there's a bunch of water there that they have like an electrified water that's meant to prevent fish from wanting to cross that barrier. And that's what's, what's that? I said no shit. Yeah, that's what they have to keep that's what they installed to keep these carp from coming in and invading the Great Lakes. So there's been a real thing like, what are we going to do with all these damn carp? So people have been kicking around different ideas of how to make it a marketable. And this guy had built this facility where he was going to start. Con- everybody was all, you know how everybody's always talking about eating omega-3 fatty acids? Mm-hmm. People like cod liver oil. It's a, like you can extract fat from these carp. So I went to visit this little mobile processing facility that he was beginning to test out. And he wanted to get, I think it was like FDA approval, to be able to make this carp oil and put it in pill form. And I go down there to see his facility. And he's showing me, he's got like a bottle of 
oil that he's extracted from these carp. And you smell it, it smells just like cod liver pills, cod liver oil. Um, and I have a little sip of it. And it was like pretty peppery and like very cod liver oily. And they go and, and investigate this little like centrifuge type machine he's using to make this stuff. You couldn't have fit another maggot in that thing, man. And I remember being like just kind of turned off because I felt a little bit like I'd been duped into eating maggot oil. Mm. I mean, it was just like he hadn't been cleaning the thing. It was the nastiest thing. I don't know if that ever guy ever got it off the ground. But that was like a weird case scenario with that stuff. But the other thing that was not weird, Yanni, do you remember up on Nunavak Island when we were fishing Tom Cod through the ice? Yes. Do you remember eating those livers? Yep. Dipped in seal oil? Mm-hmm. That was not bad. No. We ate those raw. Yeah. So the Eskimo of Nunavak, um, like Tom Cod liver, which is probably another one that's very similar, but a very small fish. So we've covered Burbot up and down on Eaton. I want to now touch on Eaton Whitefish. And this is like a one where they're not all universally appreciated because people have, I feel like people have the same from a table fare stance. People kind of have a similar perspective with mountain whitefish, which is the whitefish living, like anyone who's fished the West knows them as being a fish of the trout streams. But whereas rainbow trout, if you're fishing in the Rockies and you catch a rainbow trout, that's a non-native fish that's been introduced into that system by, you know, out of barrels, unless you're on the, the, the Pacific slope. If you're on the Pacific slope, you can have native rainbows, but anything that flows East, absolutely. You're fishing a non-native fish species. When you're fishing brown trout, you're fishing a non-native. That's a European trout. So when people think they're in some pristine Western thing, catching brown trout and rainbow trout, you're catching fish that got dumped into the place out of a barrel. It's basically like, it's kind of like a make, it's a little bit of a make-believe fish. But living there alongside them is mountain whitefish, which looks strikingly similar to the round fish that we're eating here and or catching here. And mountain whitefish are like a lot of people don't like them like all the trout fishing you've done Giannis, what has been sort of your general take on what people think of mountain whitefish oh they treat them like them those minnesotans treat the uh eel pout i mean they i've seen guys just give them the death squeeze and act like they release them they give them the death squeeze throw them on the bank so the birds eat them i mean just no respect at all when people I never heard that, of anybody think- eating them until i talked to you when they do that are they thinking that that it's going to make more room for more non-native fish by getting rid of that fish? Yes. Like, they don't want them competing with the... They don't want the natives competing with the non-native oh, fish. Oh, yeah. They don't... Yeah, well, they don't... Yeah, the sport fish. The ones that jump, right? Yeah. The, su- the suckers get the same treatment. Yeah. We started eating them because we would take them and brine them and smoke them and make, like, whitefish dip out of them. Uh... Chef Eduardo Garcia smokes them and puts them in empanadas. Yep. Little dinker, too. He came in hot. Yeah, he came in hot and crazy. I'm not even going to get ready for him. He looked like he was running from a big burbot. Did he come and go? He just came in. like He He never even slowed down. That was just a pass-through, man. (laughs) (laughs) Yanni, can you tend the line for me? Yeah, I got it. Well, it's under your boot right now. <laughs> <laughs> so that's how you... You're good. 
So that's kind of like the mountain whitefish, which I think is a pretty good fish. But it's weird because there's so much variability in whitefish. So like in the Great Lakes, you have the lake whitefish, which has a commercial market. That is like a phenomenal fish. Very white texture, but it's bony, and you got to debone it. Here, I think that a lot of people... You can cut a full-on fillet off of it. You can cut a full-on fillet. Yeah, you, you... you can go in and take a, and take a lake whitefish, which are highly respected. So in the Great Lakes, lake whitefish are as easily as esteemed as walleye, perhaps more so. And there's a limited, the Chippewa um, hold some commercial license where they use trap nets to, ca- to catch lake whitefish. And, they, and then they market the caviar as well. And they catch some big ass burbot as bycatch in those trap nets. But other people target them, and they have a really good reputation. You can flay them, but you have one line of pin bones that you got to remove on a whitefish. But, yeah, they're excellent. Fried as sandwiches. They export them, eat them in Europe. Good fish. Up here, this is like they use a lot of them to feed dogs and stuff. That's not true? Oh, I, you know, I don't honestly know. I think that um, historically... Whitefish were an important source of food, uh, primarily in the winter because it was uh, a fish that was catchable in the winter, and I believe with it nets. was used as dog food, but with nets or traps. Yeah, um, I'm not sure how much whitefish is used as dog food now. Just because people don't run sled dogs and stuff as much anymore. Um, I mean, there's areas where people do. I know that there's, you know, certainly some fish is used to feed dogs. Um, and I think there's people that use whitefish for it. Yeah. What's the general, like in Alaska, what's the general reception of the speed of, of whitefish's table fare in Alaska? I think it's, uh, a little bit unknown. I mean, I think for one thing, I think whitefish is kind of overshadowed by all the other great tasting fish we have. And as far as like the sport side of things, there's just not that many people that, get after it for whitefish um there's some personal use uh or subsistence fisheries like in the chattanooga you can spear them as they're spawning in the fall okay um, and people go do that people do that um and there are there's some sub- subsistence uh netting in some parts of the state for whitefish oh huge burbot huge oh. burbot holy, holy mackerel jig that oh jig, my jig, jig, jig. Was he paying attention? He didn't. He wasn't. He was moving. That was a big fish. Holy cow. I didn't even see it. Yeah, he went right under you, Bryce. (laughs) Was it as big as that that, that 14-pounder? Pretty close. It was in that size class. Definitely. No way. That was cool. Oh, man. I wish I would have seen it. They're out cruising our edge that we're set up on. What's that? I have that You got him on, Dirt? He's just killing it with that stuff. Open that window up for you. <laughs> oh, you got him on. A, you got him filmed. <laughs> he's got. Him, he's got him on. He's got him on the hook. Oh, nice job, Dirt. How big is it? Were we right or were <laughs> it's we a exaggerating? Nice one. You're exaggerating, but it's a dandy. <laughs> Holy! You jig him up, Dirt. So you don't need a flasher. See, all that talk about vexies. I don't know. Good job, Dirt. That's a giant. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're in here working. 
Garrett's out there just fishing. So, so you were like had a camera aiming down, making pretty pictures, as is your job, and you were fishing, which is not your job. And all of a sudden, whammo, there he was. That's incredible. Good work. Do you guys feel that when he went by that he was headed to he hit was, that? Like he, he was, had a mission? He was on a line to that jig. You stole that fish from us. That's a nice fish, man. <laughs> That's probably like a, what, like a, like a 12-pound burbot. Eight. So you went out and looked at him? So he's not even close to the 14-er. Very nice. Nice work. <laughs> nice work. Laying by some meals. All right, shut the windows. <laughs> back to spearing. Get the dark house back in action. Oh, no. What are you talking about, man? <laughs> Keep jigging. Keep stacking them up. Uh-oh. We'll be able to snag it up. So there's a book I'm reading right now called The Land of Feast and Famine. And it's about uh, fur trappers who were working around Great Slave Lake in the, I think in the 30s, the 20s, late 20s. And uh, man, for their, like, because these are guys that had are traveling by canoe and they have to carry their sled dogs with them in the canoe because they're traveling into the trapping grounds. And then when everything freezes up, they make sleds and the dogs pull the sleds. So they spend most of their time in the summertime fishing whitefish with nets to keep you know the dogs fed every night. And then when it starts to freeze up in the winter, when they know they can keep fish frozen, then they just net whitefish in order to feed the dogs throughout the winter, in order to feed themselves throughout the winter, and also to use some for trapping bait. And these guys will go and in this book they talk about periods where they're going literally months eating nothing but whitefish cooked on a spit over a fire and the intense cravings that you would get living that lifestyle but he would say that the thing you could get over like stephenson talks about this too is like you can get over salt like the our taste for salt is an acquired taste and you say when you go months and months with no salt, you lose that feeling of wishing you had salt on your meat. And when Stephenson would travel into the village, like Eskimo villages, they would just make sure to put, because they were always worried about everyone eating their food, and they would put extra salt on their food because they know that the people who didn't use salt would never be able to eat even moderately salted food. And it was a way to make your food unpalatable to people is to put a little bit of salt on it. Like, is that level of acquired? Really? But this guy that was living for months on just whitefish, their cravings would be for red meat. And, like, that would be the thing that they wish they had and would wait and wait for was to get caribou because it would offset, like, how off you felt just eating nothing but whitefish. But the way I'll be cooking these whitefish we're catching right now is just brine them whole and smoke them. Yep. It's because it's the perfect fish for it. It's oily. It's like a little bit bony, but when you smoke it, it loosens the flesh up so you can peel the flesh off. And it leaves a skeleton that looks like uh, 
something you could put like in a museum display. Like something Sylvester the cat would be walking around. Like you just like <laughs> the meat peels away and you have like the perfect little skeleton. All I do is like I slit them up from the belly to the chin, take out the guts, cut the gills out, but leave the head on, truss them by putting a little string around the back of their neck, under their gill cover, out their mouth and tie a loop in it and just hang them in the smoke or smoke like that. Freaking love those things. How long do you brine them for? Eight hours. You know, like a sometimes salt, overnight, like salt and water, fifty salt sugar, Brian, salt and I'll, sugar, yeah, juice. salt sugar, and I'll sometimes put honey in there. You see people putting all like, oh, a sprig of thyme. I just think that like that stuff is like <laughs> it does not, right? It doesn't pass into the meat. I don't think. I think that people put a lot of stuff in fish brines that there's no way you can taste later. I put rum in fish brines. Like when I do dry brines, I'll put rum in there. I've seen where you can slice up fennel and put alcohol on it and wind up getting like a fennel taste to it. But I think a lot of people put a lot of aromatics and stuff into into brines to brine fish. And there's no way that that flavor is carrying over in the necessary quantity where you can taste it above the taste of just like smoke brine and smoke fish. Yeah, I think garlic... I think you can get garlic I can see you can get garlic on it. Yeah. Because garlic has a strong taste. Yeah. But putting like a sprig of green herbs, <laughs> I, just, I just feel like when you see that kind of stuff, it's like, come on. It looks pretty, but it doesn't really matter. But yeah, that that's how I would definitely go about cooking these roundies. And then lake trout, the other fish we have on the ice right now, is often criticized for being a tad oily. And it's one of those fish that, like, some people are dismissive of, but then people that love it really love it. Matt, my brother this year, smoked up some lake trout and brought it out. And my God, is the stuff good smoked. I think it's a great fish smoked. Joe, tell, uh, talk real quick about what your reluctance is about killing big lakers. So I don't like to kill big lakers because they're a pretty long-lived fish, and it takes them a while to get to the size to actually be able to like spawn so and if you catch say a mid 30 inch laker it's probably 15 years 18 years old something like that and i just i feel bad killing big fish like that <laughs> the old ones yeah you ever fish yellow eye rockfish that's different <laughs> i don't know why it's why? different because it's 80 i don't know why it's different because it's 100 years old because i don't know why i like eating those I don't know what why there's a difference between... Maybe that's it. Maybe it's the flavor. Maybe if the lake trout tasted as good as a yellow eye rock, you'd be whacking them. Well, I don't know if we'd have a lake trout left at that point. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if a laker was... Because a yellow eye rockfish is a phenomenal fish. Mm-hmm. If a laker was that good, is it just because you kind of like, I don't really like them and they're old and those two things combined makes me not want to kill them? I think so, and... I've tried them before. Um, like you said, they're good smoke, so if we do get a small one and have to keep it, I wouldn't mind trying smoking it, but the times I've had it before I tried to have cooked it, I've just done it wrong, or the other person who was cooking it didn't prepare it right, maybe. And it's left you feeling like, why even, yeah. why even give them the, de- the death stroke? I pickled them and thought they were okay, but... I think pickled pike's better. You like pickling northerns better? Yeah. Yeah, man, I just have never mind. Like, I just don't mind, like, baked. I don't mind baked lake trout. I like smoked lake trout. 
But I feel like I have like a little bit higher tolerances for uh, for gaminess, or just yeah. Like I just I, I kind of like um, you know, the thing I often say, man. I think that some stuff there's like I don't think it's everything's job to taste perfect, right? There's just something that's like it's like interesting to mess with it, to experiment with it, and if something isn't absolutely perfect, I don't feel like it, that it was like an inconvenience you know what i mean i don't mind cooking something and then being like yeah you know next time i'm gonna try this i feel like that in and of itself is like a little bit educational warrant some messing around there's some things i mess with like common carp i've messed with them a few times and in the end i just have come to i've done it enough and had enough disappointment where now i just don't feel like messing with common carp right and you'll still find guys that are like think that common oh you gotta do this and fish cakes you're right you can basically turn it into a completely other substance with the addition of everything in your kitchen. But I don't look at them and feel, uh, you know, I mean, I just don't look at them and see food, but I still look at a laker and I'm like, yeah, man, that's like a food fish. All right, Brant, you got any concluding final thoughts as we sit here and watch the, uh, the live screen TV? Oh, it's our last night. I'm excited. I hope it turns on again. Yeah, we had a we had uh, our first night. Yep, was on fire, and last night was just. Dead. I wouldn't call it on fire. Our no? first night, well, Relative, I don't know. Relatively, we sat was, we sat no, I'm saying, over a hole and didn't. Yeah, we got one bite. But okay, well, the tip ups, yeah. tip ups were going off, and when I'm saying I'm fire on fire, I'm informing that by what happened the next night. Yeah, right. So with two nights to compare to. I think we had one night that was on fire and one night that was on ice. <laughs> Although we still saw a lot of fish. So if something, some unexplainable thing or something that some smart person might know about pressure or moon phase or light, you know, whatever turned them off last night, hopefully that switch goes the other way tonight. And I mm-hmm. think it would be pretty fun. Every fisherman has their own thing, but I do feel as do a lot of anglers that I think the barometric pressure has major implications for fish yeah that's my gut instinct is a high pressure system will shut the bite off on burbot on burbot yeah i think on lakers, lakers as trail. well you think high pressure shuts lakers down yeah, high pressure sure. fires northerns up in my opinion all right bryce you got any concluding thoughts brant's concluding thought was he hopes we have a good night of fishing well i i obviously agree with that as well <laughs> You're hoping for a good night of fishing. Yeah. Uh, something a little better than yesterday. Um, hopefully we can jig a couple more up tonight like the first night, too. And we probably got another hour of spearing before it gets too dark. We can just throw that light down. Yeah. Well, they, they just quit coming after a while. Last oh, night they we, did? We, yeah, last night we shined a light down there and never saw another white fish once it got dark. I don't know what they do. They go somewhere and lay low. Joe? I want people to appreciate the eel pout and not treat them like the Minnesota ice fishing walleye guys. Just kind of, if you do get a chance to go out for them, try cooking it up because I think they're really good. Would you go so far as to think that you're going to start the uh, North American Eel Pout Alliance (laughs) or the North American Eel Pout Foundation? I don't know about that far. But you do want people to know that it deserves your respect yeah and it's not just a trash fish that swims on the bottom of lakes picking up garbage yeah any wild thing any wild thing that 
you would be so lucky as to have that wild thing grace you with its presence, right? Warrants a level of admiration and respect, whether or not you think it's a good thing to eat or not. With some invasive species, like excluding that. But generally, yeah. To sort of wantonly, um, to kind of like wantonly destroy a native species of fish out of some misguided notion that you're going to be like improving other fisheries by disturbing a system that has been intact for tens of thousands of years that you killing this fish for no reason is somehow going to like uh, alter things for the better is a little absurd. Not you, but I'm just talking about a mug that would, that would leave an eel pout on the ice. Yeah. Out of disdain for it. Uh, Yanni, I don't have any concluders, man. My yeah, concluder I, is just hoping more whitefish turn up before it gets dark. Yeah, that'd be nice. It'd be nice to get a couple more shots each. But, um, yeah, I'd like to... I can dovetail off that a little bit. And just... I was thinking, as we we're getting ready for the concluding thoughts here, that I was thinking, man, just another species to add to the list of, like, wild game where people are like, oh, that thing sucks, 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 sucks. And then finally I'm like, oh, tried it. Guess what? Doesn't suck. Actually, pretty good. <laughs> And what I was going to say, like, make a short list, and then I'm counting off in my head. I'm like, well, I've heard that about elk. Well, I've probably heard that about deer and moose and caribou antelope. and antelope and bears, mountain lions. <laughs> and by golly, if, like, some – so who are these people that however long ago, like, started this thing – where they were hunters and fishermen, they were sportsmen, and all of a sudden they're like, you know, not really that into eating them. I'm just going to start saying they suck. Yeah, it was the it was some sort of like dramatic shift that came out of having too many too much. chickens growing for them. At yep, the it was like a thing farm. that it came out of. Uh, it came out of being spoiled by abundance of other stuff that people could start to have like disdain for or negative feelings about the resources yeah so my concluding thought is next time you hear someone tell you that something's so so and so is no good to eat try it oh find a good recipe yeah if i didn't eat everything that someone told me is no good to eat <laughs> yeah you you just scratch off 90 percent of the wild harvest out there all right that's all thank you for joining I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. You ever get that feeling the walls closing in, the concrete jungle suffocating you? You crave some wide open spaces, the chance to connect with nature, maybe in a spot all your own. Well, head over to land.com. They've got ranches, forests, mountains, streams, you name it. Search by acreage. You can search by location. You can search by the kind of hunting and fishing you're dreaming of. Land.com. It is where the adventure begins. <laughs> 